This was the title of my very first lesson, Christians in the Election Year. We discussed being wise with our speech. We've talked about how Facebook is often a terrible medium for debate and how ultimately our Father in Heaven is in control. We were reminded of that with some of the songs that we sang this morning as well. Our God, indeed, He is awesome. If they could do it, we can do it. That was the title of my second lesson. We did a study looking at the apostles in the first century and how there were so many different backgrounds with these men, and yet they were able to be unified through Jesus and through his resurrection. And we talked about how we should be known more for our faith in Jesus than our political views or affiliations with certain parties. We talked about how our allegiance to Christ comes before any party, how discipleship must prevail over disputes, how we need to ask instead of assuming or accusing and believing the best, focusing on faith, and that God is greater. So as we enter into week number three, the question becomes, where do we go from here? What else should we talk about? Well, I saw on Facebook, oddly enough, a, uh, a, a nice discussion talking about politics where a gospel preacher had shared with Uh, his friends, uh, some of the questions that he has received from some of the members at his congregation where he labors. And the question, or maybe one of the big questions that he received, I think is the big question that many Christians have. And that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. The big question that I think a lot of Christians have when it comes to politics and, and Christianity, how should Christians vote? And so I want to talk about that this morning. And maybe you agree with this as well. Maybe this is one of the big thoughts that you have had. Or maybe as you have discussed with your brothers and sisters in Christ at some point in time, how do we go about voting? How do we decide when it comes to this issue? How would you answer that question? I believe there are some thoughts, some very important things that we need to think about. As we study this, I also believe that there are some guardrails, that there are some things that we need to make sure that we also remember as we go through this question, the big question, and as we begin to answer this question with respect to how Christians should vote. I want to begin by just kind of laying a couple of things down here. Number one, as we think about the big question about how Christians should vote, it is very important that all of us understand that this pulpit and that this church is not in the business of endorsing candidates. We all understand that, right? That's very important because I think a lot of times there's just a, mic, a big misconception about what the church is supposed to be all about. And it's more than just like with food and recreational activities. Many times this is what many people believe that the church should be all about, but that's not what we're supposed to be all about. And therefore, this is not a democratic church. It's not a Republican church. It is a church that belongs to Jesus Christ, hence the church of Christ. That's what we are all about. It's all about being to Jesus Christ, and it's all about him. And as Christians, if you have your Bible, open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15. As we think about what we are supposed to be about, we belong to Jesus Christ. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15, Paul reminded Timothy of, of what the church is supposed to be about, about what God's people are to be about. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, Paul said, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we're supposed to be about. 
the pillar and support of the truth. We should be interested in the truth and supporting the truth and sharing the truth. That's what we all need to be about. As we think about this big question here and understanding that what this pulpit is to be used for, what it's not to be used for, what this church is supposed to be about, and what it's not supposed to be about, that also means that it's not my responsibility to try to endorse any particular candidate, all right? And hopefully we all understand that. I think we all do. But I will also say this, that churches are not to you know, have this idea of allowing candidates to come in and speak. Now, I don't believe that would ever be a problem here, but I will tell you, I've been a part of a church that did that. I was a part of a congregation that did that years ago, where right before worship service, there were two local candidates, and they were able to come in and come up to the pulpit and kind of give their speech, and and then they left. They didn't even stay for worship. I mean, if you're going to do that, at least stay, right? They just walked out. And then I eventually walked out after them because I went to one of the elders and I asked, well, what is going on here? That's not what church is all about, is it? There's a lot of misconception, even among God's people. Furthermore, if you really want to dive into this, the U.S. tax code (laughs) prohibits the church when it comes to promoting or condemning candidates. So that's not what we're supposed to be about. That's not our responsibility here. We have things that we need to be focusing upon. And I say all of this because sometimes when you just look at society, there's so many different expectations when it comes to what the church is supposed to be all about. Secondly, as we move forward to the big question, I think it is important to understand first century Christians, they didn't have a say with respect with who would be king. There were no get out and vote stickers, right? None of that was taking place in the first century. There was no around-the-clock news coverage for midterms and elections. So how were, they were, how were they to respond? Well, let's read from the Word of God. Open up your Bible to Romans chapter 13. I've mentioned this in a couple of my lessons here. In Romans chapter 13, what we find is that they were given inspired instruction when it came to their role or with respect to the role of uh, those who were in authority at that time. Uh, in Romans chapter 13, listen to what Paul says here. Paul said every person is to be in subjection to the governing authority. So he's giving them instruction about how they were to live during that time. That every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which, are, which exist are established by God. These people are in place by God. That's what he's saying here. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. It was a big deal with what Paul was saying here and how they were to respond. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. So he's given them instruction about the purpose of these leaders. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So he gave them detailed instructions about their responsibility to those who were in governing positions. And this was something that was not going to be optional. It was something that they, that they had to do. 
Now, I think it is important to make another point as you consider what Paul is saying here. And I want to go over to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, Paul or uh, Luke here, as he spoke about Peter and John here, he does remind us that it should be noted that God's people should always do the will of God first, right? God's people should always do the will of God first. If you look over in 1 Peter chapter 5, as Peter and John were preaching, in verse 27 it says, When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So we always need to keep that in mind as well, that first and foremost, we always need to obey God rather than men. And yet we also need to make sure that we're, that we're balanced with this, that we do have a responsibility when it comes to submitting to those who are in these particular roles. In fact, one of the apostles in that passage He would write to Christians who were suffering, and he would give them instruction. And I think one of the most powerful passages as we think about the election year is 1 Peter 2 and verse 17. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, if you want to turn over there, there are four thoughts that Peter gives here. As you read this passage, as you read this chapter, in chapter 2, Peter's going to make a big deal about doing the will of God. He's going to talk about the importance of God's will. And, and how the saints were to submit to those in authority. In fact, when you go back to verse 13, he said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Now notice what he says in verse 17. As you think about the saints in the first century, this would apply to us as well. Peter is going to emphasize, he said, listen, you honor all people. You treat people the right way. You value people. You respect others. We're all made in the image of God. We love one another. We love our neighbor as, as we love ourselves. He says, you honor, uh, you honor all people. And then he said, you love the brotherhood. Our love for one another, and what a powerful passage too, should be way more important than political parties that often divide. Our theme is one heart, one soul. Politics is not often about one heart, one soul. They're often about division. But we're supposed to be about unity, one heart, one soul. We need to make sure that we treat one another the proper way. Not only that, but he goes on in verse 17. He says, fear God. Let us never forget that. Let us never forget that God always comes first. The beginning of wisdom and knowledge, according to Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 7, is to fear God. And so we need to give God the proper reverence uh, first and foremost. And remember that he is in control, never a leader or a political party. God is the one who is always in control. Then he said, honor the king. And think about that. That's a powerful statement. These Christians are in the midst of suffering, and yet he's telling them, you still have a responsibility. You honor the king. And while that's often challenging, that's what they were to do. You think about the leaders during this time, and you think about men like like Nero, and how while things started off well, things would end well with him and with respect to Christians. 
And that's not exactly the kind of person you want ruling over you, and yet they were to honor the king. And so as you think about this big question about how we should vote, just kind of walking us through and just kind of considering, consider where many of these Christians, all of the Christians in the first century were, that they were given instructions about how they were to interact with those in governing officials or governing roles. They were to how to interact with respect and honor toward all individuals. And even Jesus talked about this as well. If you turn over to Mark chapter 12, turn over to Mark chapter 12. We talked about this last week, but we'll talk about, talk about it again. And Paul spoke about it as well in Romans 13. In Mark chapter 12 and verse number 17, Jesus, as he was having a conversation with some men that were trying to trap him, the Pharisees and the Herodians, he would say in Mark chapter 12 and verse number 17, he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. And I just think that's a powerful point that, as Paul said, you know, you have to pay taxes. That's the right thing to do. And Jesus is saying, you render to Caesar what belongs to him. Just thinking about taxes, uh, and what would take place back in the first century, what took place back in the first century. Um, one book said this, that the taxes levied by the Roman government were many and varied. There was, first of all, the poll tax. This had to be paid by every male over 14 and every female over 12, and those who were older were exempt. There was the land tax, which was payable in kind. Both of these direct taxes were collected by Roman officials in Palestine. In addition, there were many forms of indirect taxation. Charges were made on all imports and exports, including the transportation of slaves. There was also a market toll in Jerusalem introduced by Herod. When you consider all of these taxes that would have been given and used during this time, in particular uh, in Rome, this money would have gone toward, in some degree, to many of the wicked behaviors that were taking place in Rome. And I'm sure many of the Christians were not necessarily pleased with, with paying these taxes or the amount, and yet they did. As you think about the Christians in the first century, they didn't have much of a say with respect to those who were in leadership position. Something that else is interesting, something else that is interesting is what we don't see in the first century. We don't see Jesus authorizing his disciples to revolt. And we don't see Jesus or Christians radically seeking to change governments. But make no mistake about it, there were Christians in certain government roles You look at Romans chapter 16 and verse number 23, we read about a man named Erastus in Romans chapter 16 and verse number 23. It's just a small little text, and yet I think it shares or provides some insight that this man that Paul is greeting at the end of his letter in Rome, he said, Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And so you did have Christians in some of these particular roles. And it doesn't mean that even though they they may not have been able to do certain things during this time, it didn't mean that the saints in the first century did not utilize the rights that they had. In Acts chapter 16 and verse number 37, remember when Paul and Silas had been thrown into prison? Paul and Silas had been thrown into prison after they converted the Philippian jailer and his family. We see in verse number 35, it says, now when day came, The chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they're sending us away secretly. Paul said, no, 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 no. 
you did all of this and that manner. You're not going to just kind of get rid of me secretly now going through the back door. You know, I have these rights as a Roman citizen. And so he said, no, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And so even though they lived in the first century and they didn't have a lot of things that we had, there were still things that they were able to do. And I'm just sharing all of this with you because as we think about the big question about how we should vote, it's important to understand what many of the Christians went through in the first century. And I will say this, despite the leadership, despite the rulers, despite the difficult situation many of these Christians faced in the first century, you know what still happened? The gospel still was being spread, permeated everywhere. You have Erastus, who is a city treasurer. You have the gospel going throughout the entire world. Hearts were changed. Souls were saved. And that's what we do see. And I think that's a very powerful point, even as we consider politics and elections, that the word of God still has to be spread. And there's great things that we can do. So the first thought that we looked at was uh, this pulpit, this congregation, we're not about endorsing certain people or certain parties. That's not what we're all about. And it's important to understand what the saints in the first century experienced as well. But that now takes us to the last thought of the lesson here. What about us? People say, well, we do get to vote, and that is exactly right. And people say, well, things are different now than compared to the first century. And to many degrees, that is exactly right. So I'm going to ask you to consider three thoughts as we attempt to answer this question here. Number one, the first thought is this. We do have the opportunity to vote. It is an individual decision, and yet we do have this opportunity to vote. One has to decide if they're going to use this opportunity. One preacher has said this. If God put the leaders in place and these leaders have given us the power to choose, then by all means, we should be involved. And I like that quote. I think there's something very important to that. But each person has to make this decision. I cannot force this decision upon you and you can't force it upon me. There are times where people just decide that they may not vote at all. Secondly, we need to know that that as we think about voting, we have this opportunity, and yet it is something that is individual in nature. And voting ultimately is going to fall into the realm of conscience. You think about the voting and the things that really go that are a part of all of this. Judgment is going to have to be made if and when one decides to vote. And one is going to vote. They must vote. And the way that they vote has to honor their conscience. And I think this falls into the realm of Romans chapter 14. If you want to turn over there real quickly here, we don't have time to look at all of Romans chapter 14. But as Paul was dealing with matters of conscience with respect to eating meats and observing certain days, what Paul does, he gives instructions about how the saints were to respond to one another and how each person was to behave. In a passage that I think may be good for us to think about are Romans 14 and verse 5. Paul said, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And I believe that this would have application when it comes to voting. That one has to vote according to their conscience and one has to use their best judgment. One person, and this often happens, may have a whole different view about a particular person or a particular party than another brother or sister in Christ may have. And one may not necessarily even like the choice that another person has made 
or another person who they may be endorsing. And yet, we still are going to have to treat the other brother in the proper way. And so, we all have the opportunity to vote. It is an individual decision. It does fall into the realm of, of conscience. And I think something else that is important is that voting, as you think about voting, it is not like appointing elders. As you think about appointing elders, that's a very important decision, and so is voting as well. And yet, you think about 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have these, this, this detailed list about the men and the qualifications of those who are going to be an elder. And we have the same thing as well in Titus chapter 1. And if you really think about it, candidates virtually never completely align to what we know is right or wrong according to the scriptures. Would you agree with that? That I don't know of one. Male or female. I don't know of one where that's, that's possible. Now, I wish they did. Don't get me wrong. I wish they did. This is where one's best judgment and conscience come into play. And while we don't have a list of qualifications for our president or vice president or senators or congressmen or women, I do think there are some things that we can think about scripturally that should help guide us, that can give us some more insider direction and wisdom. I think just asking certain questions, what does a person believe? I think that's a valid and fair question. What does a person believe? And what do they endorse? Do they believe in God? And if they're in office, how might they affect me religiously and us religiously? I think that's important. And how are they going to affect our children, not just now, but also in the future? Where do they stand on certain moral issues? I think these are fair questions. Think about this. Laws are powerful. I think we all would agree with that. You can look back in America's distant past and not too distant past, and you can see how laws often shape morality and how things that are wrong are called right and how things that are right are often called wrong. And yet this is going to be where individual judgment and opinion is going to come into play. So as you think about this question here, at times it can be somewhat of a challenging question of how we're going to vote. And I'll use this example here. And I, I got this example from the brother on Facebook. I thought it was really good. He said, think about this. A Christian who likes a candidate who they believe stands for a particular moral issue, but this same person is in an adulterous marital relationship, has to decide which one of these is going to be the litmus test for them. Does that make sense? They want to stand for what is right on this particular issue. And yet they also understand that this particular person is engaged in something that they also know to be wrong from the word of God. So where do you decide? How do you decide what's going to be the litmus test for you? And it could be that maybe both of those are the litmus test and they simply just don't vote for that person at all. But I'll say this, many candidates fall into this area where they force a, they force a Christian to sort through certain issues. And I do believe the scriptures can help us when it comes to these moral issues. And at the end of the day, judgment still have to be made. Each person is going to have to make the best judgment and vote where they honor their conscience. This can be difficult at times. And one should take seriously who they endorse and what they approve. You know, many politicians can often fall into the category of what the prophet Micah said in chapter 2 and verse 11. As he was speaking to the people. He said, if a man walking after the wind of falsehood had told lies. And said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor. He would be spokesman to this people. 
Wow. That's a pretty scary thought. And yet that's apparently what the Israelites wanted. They, they, they eventually strayed from God. And I think a lot of politicians fall into that. They'll, 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 they'll talk about whatever it is they think people want. But the Israelites, they got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. As you look through this word of God, you will see how important leaders really are. It's all throughout the scriptures. And yet there's something else very important that you also see as you look throughout the word of God. You will see that despite all of these leaders, God is in control. And let's be sure that we remember that. And so that's how I decided to go about addressing this big question. And I think these are things that we need to ponder and to take seriously. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know you are in control. We know, Father, you see all things. Your will be done. Help us, Father, to always trust in you and not in man, not in riches, not in parties, only in you. Help us, Father, to walk by faith and be with us, be with this country. And help us, Father, to continue to influence others around us for good every day. Help us, Father, to focus on your gospel, your good news through your son Jesus and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible class will begin in eight minutes, not ten, eight minutes. Uh, Don't class here, the Gospel of Mark. And one another passages in classroom number one.